the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined now by United States Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. Good morning, Senator, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Good morning, Hugh. Merry Christmas to you and yours and your listeners. Um, it is the most wonderful time of the year, as Andy Williams said. And uh, I got ready for the season by uh, going back and listening to the famous and fantastic Mark D. Roberts podcast with you from, what, 15 years ago? Oh, my goodness, yes, the Christmas, Christmas Carol. Carol podcast. Yeah. So I assume you'll be playing that again on Friday, but I wanted to get a head start. Well, thank you. Well, Senator, I want to talk to you about these negotiations underway, because I've been doing this show for 23 years, and you've been in the Senate for, what, 14, 8, 10? <laughs> Not quite. It only, it only seems that long. Um, I think I think I just finished my ninth year. If you were about to okay, finish. so maybe you were only around for two failed attempts at so-called comprehensive immigration reform. But I, I remember three of them, the McCain-Graham, the Kyle-Graham and the Rubio-Graham. And now we got number four coming in the in the big supplemental. If it doesn't finish the wall, it will not pass. Does your colleagues do your colleagues in the conference understand that? Well, Hugh, I was there from 2013 uh, as a representative for the Gang of Eight bill, and I helped stop that bill, which was a very bad bill. Uh, it followed the failed patterns you cited in the past of so-called comprehensive immigration reform, which is to give away legal status to illegal immigrants in the country and expand illegal immigration in, re- uh, in return for promises of future enforcement and future construction of a wall, which never seemed to materialize. It's important to note that the negotiations happening right now are, are not about some kind of massive comprehensive bill. It's not about border security, for instance, in return for democratic immigration priorities like amnesty or you know, legal status for so-called dreamers. It is about securing our border if we're going to help Ukraine protect its own borders. That's what the negotiation is about. So I, I'm not going to support legislation that does not stop or at least substantially reduce the flow of illegal immigrants into this country that Joe Biden has unleashed. I mean, Hugh, I just got the numbers in for yesterday. It was a new record yet again. Oh, 12,000 migrants crossed the border yesterday. Uh, that's uh, not the first time in the last couple of weeks where 12,000 migrants have crossed the border. Hugh. I mean, just think about that. In, in just a span of a week, you'd add the same number of people that we have living in Fort Smith, Arkansas, to our country. In a year at that rate, you would add almost 4 million people, which is not just like adding the state of Arkansas, but say throwing in New Hampshire uh, on top of it. So any legislation that we have is going to have to stop or substantially reduce the flow of migration in this country that Joe Biden has unleashed. I think it can because it will send a signal to people coming, you know, not just from, say, Mexico and Guatemala, but from Africa and Asia and all parts of the world. 
because they know they can get in. Like, hey, if you go to the American border, you don't get in. You're going to have to sit in Mexico. That alone will have a huge deterrent effect. Now, Senator, I, I don't believe that the House will support any package that does not finish the wall. And it's between 700 and 800 miles of a very sturdy and continually upgraded and repaired barrier, because that is the visible expression of the invisible commitment. I haven't seen it in any of the detail. I know there's other good stuff in there, like Remain in Mexico. Is the wall on the table? Because if it isn't, I don't think the Republicans should agree to this. So, Hugh, there's negotiations underway uh, that include uh, some border wall construction. And I, support, I agree with you that a wall just sits there and works. It is the visible expression of an invisible will. And, you know, you don't have to worry about future bureaucrats or presidents defunding it or going on strike or kids calling in sick or anything like that. Um, however, we have a crisis right now to address, and we're not going to build a wall between now and the end of next year across all 2,000 miles of our border um, or even substantial parts of it. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, migrants aren't trying to go over the wall. They're not trying to cut holes through the wall. They're going to ports of entry, and they're using a few magic words that the Biden administration and left-wing nonprofits coach them to use to take advantage of things like our asylum system or to benefit from Joe Biden's lawless expansion of parole. So while I agree that we need to build the wall and we need to complete the wall, hopefully under the next Republican president, um, the right now, asylum and parole are the two key reasons you've seen this unprecedented flood of migrants to our border. And I think that needs to get fixed. But I sat down with one of your colleagues who I I like a great deal when the last sort of uh, nascent effort was underway last year. And I was very blunt with this, Senator, and I said, I will never support any deal that doesn't finish the 800 miles. The funding and the commitment and the timetable, it's got to get done. And don't ask me. I'm I'm a wet, right? They call me. I'm a liberal. Let a lot of people stay. But until they do that, I don't think anything else works, Tom. I just, Senator, because I just think people recognize we're not serious. Uh, Finland's building a border wall. Uh, Israel has a border wall. Egypt has a wall in Gaza because they work. Yeah, of course. Walls have worked for as long as human beings have lived in organized societies. Uh, and the Democrats once supported it. You know, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton all supported it 17 years ago. But it's become uh, some, it's become anathema in their party, of course, because Donald Trump proposed it. And their right. reflexive instinct is to oppose anything that Donald Trump did. But as you say, many other countries have walls or are building walls. And, and we should do what you say. We should finish construction of our wall. Uh, we should also make sure that it's properly manned and equipped so people can't break through it or go over it. Uh, but that won't be enough. Even if we build the entire wall, it won't be enough to stop the flow we see today because so much of that flow is, is happening at Agreed. points of entry. Agreed. We're coming and abusing our asylum laws or abusing Joe, Joe Biden's uh, use of the parole system. It's necessary but not sufficient. The other parts are enough facilities to house people and find them and hold them until their trials can be held and enough uh, immigration judges and expedited rules is that all going to be in there? Because if there isn't, no one should agree to this. I mean, Joe so, Biden created a nightmare. Why would we fix it for him unless we actually fix it? So, so Hugh, some will be in there. Um, but again, I, I'd caution about a, the, the capacity. If you have 12,000 migrants coming a day, you simply cannot build enough detention facilities with enough beds and have enough immigration judges to hear their cases quickly to adjudicate them and turn them back. What you have to do is turn off that flow of migrants. It's one thing 
to have more border patrol agents and have more detention beds when you have a few hundred migrants showing up at our border every day. It's a whole other thing to have it when there's 12,000 a day. So the main goal that we have in trying to secure a border is to turn off that flow of migration. And it works. When you send the signal that you're not going to get in, people will stop coming. You saw this, for instance, immediately after the 2016 election, even before Donald Trump took office, the number of illegal crossings fell dramatically because people believed that Donald Trump was going to totally shut down the border. Now, when that didn't happen immediately in 2017, those started inching back up. But word gets out very rapidly uh, across the world whenever you can get into the American border or you can't. I mean, people get here, they get way through, they immediately start sending text messages or DMs back to their friends and family in the home country. Hey, I got in, you can too, everyone come. Or, hey, I'm stuck in Mexico for the next eight months. Don't spend $8,000 of your life savings to pay some cartel to track you all across Latin America. So, Senator, uh, is Senator Lankford, friend of the show, treating you as a must-have vote? Because I'm going to boil this down to if Senator Cotton is opposed to this bill, I am not going to be in favor of it. (laughs) And I might not be in favor of it, even if he is in favor of it, if the wall isn't in there. But are they treating you as sort of the the signal for serious border conservatives? Well, (laughs) I wouldn't want to characterize how anyone sees my vote. But I, I suspect that any bill that doesn't get my vote and doesn't get probably at least half of the Republican senator's vote is not going to succeed in the House, in which case it's a fruitless exercise. Uh, We're not trying to pass a bill to the Senate. We're trying to pass a law through the Congress that will stop the flow of migrants at our border. And is that realism in the conference? Because I'm seriously, the Lucy and the football thing, we can't do it again because Joe Biden created this nightmare. Why would we want to own it again as happened three times before? Yeah, I think, uh, Hugh, very much so. That sense of realism prevails among Republican senators. You may have seen the news that a handful of Republican senators asked for a conference-wide meeting when we are uh, back in session the week of January 8th to discuss exactly uh, where the state of negotiations that Senator Langford is conducting with Democrats in the White House stand uh, to see if it's something that we can support. So there is not going to be a bill before Christmas. You're going to go home? No, we're nowhere near having a bill before Christmas. And I mean, I think that goes to show that we are serious about this. Senator Langford is not uh, just trying to get a deal for a deal's sake. We're trying trying to get a deal that uh, Republican senators can support because it stops the flow of migration. Chuck Schumer is bad at his job. He waited too long to engage in these negotiations. Then he tried to bring senators back to jam uh, a vote up against the Christmas holiday that obviously is not working. Um, so I imagine we're going to have a few more votes on nominees this week, and then we'll break uh, for the Christmas. Uh, yeah. oh, a last quick question for you, Senator. When are we going to shoot back at the Houthis? Because they're going to keep shooting. I don't care how many ships we've got out there. Until we shoot back, they're going to keep shooting. Well, it's two months overdue, Hugh. Um, I, I mean, a ragtag rebel band in Yemen has now basically shut down shipping through the Red Sea, which accounts for, I think, one-eighth of all global commerce. Um, and we haven't destroyed every one of their um, firing batteries and their ammunition store, storage sites, this is pathetic. All we're doing is inviting more tax on shipping and more tax on our own naval vessels, for instance. It's astonishing that Joe Biden is allowing this to happen. I mean, the main point, uh, one of the main points of having a United States Navy patrol the high seas around the world is to ensure freedom of navigation on the high seas. Uh, so we should have shot back and destroyed the entire Houthis arsenal two months ago. 
I hope Joe Biden finally screws up his courage to do it soon. Otherwise, not only is it going to be bad for Americans uh, in our pocketbooks and the impact of shipping worldwide, but American sailors uh, or merchant marines are going to get killed. Bonus question, Senator. Um, Lloyd Austin, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blink. It's a mixed message from the White House to Israel. Do you agree with me on that? And, and ought we to just clearly state we are with Israel until they have destroyed Hamas, which is my view? Yeah, it, it seems like they're all trying to manage internal Democratic Party <clears throat> politics more than they are helping Israel win the war. I mean, remember, part of this supplemental negotiation package we're debating is $14 billion in aid to Israel. But I have to say, if I was in Israel's government, I might say, you know what, keep your $14,000 and keep out of our business. Just leave us alone and let us get get on with the business of destroying Hamas. Yeah, $14 billion is not worth losing the war. It isn't, and they're not going to take it. Senator Tom Cotton, Merry Christmas. Safe travel to you and your family. We'll talk to you in the new year. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back, except head over to Angel Tree at the top of HughHewitt.com. That is, that is the one-stop place for you to go. I also have a phone number, so I'll give you the phone number if you want to help us make our goal of getting a Christmas gift to all the kids out there. 888 A Christmas gift from their mom or dad who's incarcerated with a note from mom or dad, something from their list. 888 Or go to hughhewitt.com. And click on the Angel Tree banner at the very top. Takes a second to load, and then you'll see it. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. You've been very generous. Please dig deep. I'll be right back. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. I'm joined by Brett Baer of Fox News, where he hosts special report every night. Hello, Brett. How are you? Hey, Hugh. I am hoping that everyone goes and gets your graphic novel for their kids. And I want to know when the second one is coming out because my grandson loves it so much. When is it coming out? And please tell people about it. Let's just plug reading about history via Brett Bear for kids. Yeah, it's called the, the series is called the History uh, Club, and it's Duel Across Time is the first one. And it is about um, – uh, history club and middle school, and uh, they are a bunch of different kids that come together around history, and they are visited by uh, someone from the future that needs their help. And so they start this journey of going back in time to actual times in history uh, to try to stop this villain, the history twister, uh, who is, for one reason or another, twisting history to try to change it. So uh, they bounce around. So we sneak in some real history there uh, throughout the graphic novel. Um, the second one's going to come out, you know, pretty soon. We don't have a date yet, but uh, it'll be out next year, mid-year. And uh, really excited because it's uh, the first one really took off. Brett, I think you've got a Hardy Boys on your hand. I, mean, I, I don't say that because you're my friend. I say that because my grandson can't stop talking about this. And, of course, the Hardy Boys or any of Tom Swift, people – my age, remember how they turn these things out a book a month, basically, because readers want to read Brent, uh, Brent Bronco. I can't remember. Are you going to accelerate the output? I think so. I mean, we've got a lot of storylines that I've been working on. Uh, it's, you know, it's always a matter of production and the graphic, um, the illustrations are really great and uh, it just takes time. So uh, we're going to try to speed it up a little bit, but uh, book two will be out in coming months. All right. I, I'll keep flogging it. A great Christmas present, America. Trust me on this. It's not my word. It's my nine-year-old grandson who loves to read graphic novels. He loves the Wimpy Kid series. But this one, he said he loved it. Oh, Brett, let's get to the news. You had to sit down with Liz Cheney. Here's a little bit of that conversation. 
uh, specifically, and, and I understand what you're saying about the former president, what you feel about what would happen, but you but, haven't been but vocal. It's not, it's but not, you haven't right. been vocal about President Biden what, when, like, executive yeah, orders to cancel student loan, but, ban but evictions, mandate COVID yeah, vaccines. Brett, well, here's a I, list. I think it's a very different thing. After the SCOTUS ruled. Are you going to let me answer this? Yeah, question, I am. Though? Just let me list them. After the SCOTUS ruled against it, he still used regulatory means to write off, you know, the student debt, wall off uh, 1.5 million acres of land for fossil fuel. What, what this, basically is saying is that there are things that have been done outside of the rule of federal courts that you haven't weighed in on. Well, first of all, I don't think it's true that I haven't weighed in on those. And I think a lot of those, if you look at the kinds of things. So, Brett, I wanted to add, you had to hold your ground there a bit. Liz can be very, very, I've known her a long time. I admire much of what she does. Didn't like the, the January 6th committee. How tendentious was that interview? You know, I've known her a long time, too, and obviously hosting her um, and she has her point of view. I've just seen her everywhere on every channel, and I thought uh, it would be good to press her on a couple of things. That was based on a Wall Street Journal op-ed, which essentially said um, that between, you know, the Biden administration trying to censor uh, social media and a long list of things that I was kind of listing there, uh, that was from that op-ed uh, saying that, you know, for the people that say the former president, if he's elected, it's like walking to a dictatorship. Um, this op-ed said that's just misplaced because the media and the bureaucratic state would be throwing candlesticks and pots and pans at him had that happened. Yet, if uh, for, for uh, President Biden, if he goes outside the regulatory or the uh, the courts in any way, shape, or form, and that was the list there, um, you don't hear one word. So um, that was the point, and I'm just kind of giving a, at least a contrast to some of the the stuff that um, that she she writes. Now, listen, there are people that, that listen to her and what she says and say that's exactly what we, we have to focus on, and you know, we're going to have all different voices on special report. I just gave a little uh, pushback throughout. Now, my point of view about the January 6th commission is that they never answered the question. If Mike Pence had put aside the Electoral College ballots, uh, what would have happened? And what would have happened? The Supreme Court would have told them to count them the next day because the Constitution is very strong and there wouldn't have been a coup and there's not going to be a coup and he's not going to be a dictator if he wins reelection. I just think it's all hyperbole, Brett. And but I, I don't doubt the sincerity of Liz Cheney and a lot of people that are worried like Bob Kagan about a Trump presidency. I just disagree. But it seems to me a lot of people from that wing of the American political spectrum, mostly concerned about Trump, will not hear us say we just don't believe you. Uh, not that you're insincere. I believe she's sincere, but they don't want to hear us say I just don't think there's a threat. Yeah. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that point of view. I mean, listen, the news is covering all sides. And uh, that's what I was trying to do last night. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes those inter- interviews get chippy, but it's uh, it was all good. I love that chippy where that's what we say about Miles Garrett getting chippy every week. Brett, let's talk a little bit about the border. Bill Malugan has been doing an amazing work. And it seems to me that American opinion has shifted as decidedly as it has in Israel against a two state solution. It's just shifted in America in favor of a closed up tight border. Do you share my assessment of where American politics is right now on the border? 
Yeah, and I think the polls uh, share that uh, pretty pretty closely. You know, you look at the internals of some of these polls uh, for President Biden on immigration down in the 20s. Um, and I think that the issue of immigration has taken on a different importance. Uh, you know, I thought it was significant prior to 2022. It turned out not to be one of the leading factors and abortion and threat to democracy was a lot higher than I thought it was going to be ahead of that midterm. But I really think it has eclipsed that with blue states, uh, sanctuary cities having real problems, let alone the border issue itself. So what I am most afraid of, I've been doing this show for 23 and a half years, and Republicans have tried to come up with comprehensive immigration reform three times, the Graham-McCain uh, bill, the Kyle bill, and the Rubio bill. Three times it did not work because they did not build a wall. And I'm afraid the Republicans are going to do it again. I'm going to talk with Senator Cotton at the bottom of the hour. Do you think Senator Lankford's led negotiation is going to be hard-nosed enough for the House GOP and the party as a whole? I think he realizes that if it's not, it's not going to get through. And you're right. I covered the White House during the Bush years where they thought they could get comprehensive immigration reform. And every time they went down that road, it was like, Charlie Brown and Lucy in the football. I mean, it just yanked away, even though they had the numbers. And so it was internal battles that prevented uh, that. Whenever you add that comprehensive element to it, it seems to um, get watered down. So I think they're focused on border security first, uh, and and that's part of the negotiation on this supplemental. I just don't know the timing of, you know, they keep on saying a deal by the end of this week. That really seems uh, aggressive as far as what I'm hearing on Capitol Hill. Well, I'm going to talk with Senator Cotton, but I don't think it's doable. And I also don't think they have the wall in the bill. So the bill is dead. And I, I'm just a realist on this. If there's no wall, the bill is dead. And I, I just, Brett, I cannot understand how Senate Republicans do not understand that. I, I, and I don't think the wall is in the deal. Do you? I don't, not specifically. And I think, um, you know, Technical advances, you know, security, added numbers, blah, blah, blah. But I I would highly doubt if that language includes. Yeah, the blah, blah, blah is the modern iteration of yada, yada, yada. And we've had it. And you're the neutral guy, so you don't have to say this, but I'm the Republican. I get to say blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Ain't going to work. It never works. But we'll we'll be watching tonight. I know you're covering it like nobody else. And so I hope you have a uh, I probably won't talk to you to the new year. Have a very Merry Christmas, Brett. And and, uh, I hope you get a vacation and hit the link sometime. You deserve it. (laughs) All right. You too. Thank you. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live on this Tuesday, December 19th, joined by Byron York of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Good morning, Byron. Good morning, Hugh. I I want to read you something I posted on X during the break, because it is the crystallization of everything I was talking about with Drucker and Michael Oren. It reads, the Senate GOP must, cannot blow these negotiations on the border. It must insist on finishing the wall, plus the remaining Mexico policy, and other changes to secure the border. They cannot punt away their enormous leverage on the border. Americans see with their own eyes what Joe Biden has wrought, and they insist it be changed and the border closed. They also, the serious ones from across the spectrum, also stand with Israel against Hamas. POTUS trying to have it both ways is killing him politically, just as his age, the border, and cost of living have been crushing his approval rating. If former President Trump or Governor DeSantis, Ambassador Haley or former Governor Christie, if one of the one of them are somehow the nominee, if they run on closing the border, finishing the wall, standing unequivocally with Israel, 
rebuilding our military, especially our fleet, extending the tax cuts, providing resources to local police to fight crime, and conditioning federal spending on schools on the adoption by states of the Arizona model on school choice, he or she will win in a walk. Do you agree with me, Byron? Well, I think we agree that you have to have a Republican president to get those things done. Yes. Uh, that they're not going to be accomplished in the current standoff um, in the Senate uh, over aid to Israel, Ukraine, uh, Taiwan, and the border situation. That's, that's not going to happen. Um, so it's certainly that's those are the things that Donald Trump himself is promising on the campaign trail. He said, you know, I did it once, I'll do it again. Although he didn't actually build the wall when he was president. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think the situation we have now, just, just now, the issue today, the United States wants to send aid to Israel and wants to send aid to Ukraine. Um, and Congress won't do it. And I think you have a situation in which the president on October 20th sent this supplemental request, this request for $106 billion, hopefully to get him through the next election. And he asked for money for Israel. He asked for money for Ukraine. He asked for money for Taiwan. And then he throws in the border. So he, the, these two crises you have now, you have Israel and you have Ukraine. The president asked for those, and he insists that they must be passed together in one bill, and he attaches the most intractable issue in American politics, that is immigration and the border. He attaches it to that and says it must be passed along with Israel and Ukraine. This is a recipe for failure, and what we're seeing right now is that failure. Unless, unless he's serious and the Republicans demand what will work. He's and not Byron, serious. That, that, Obviously, the president, the president has intentionally created the system on the border. I mean, we have numbers that nobody ever even imagined dreamed of pouring right. over the border. And it's not Mexico. It's not uh, Central America. It is it is China. It is Pakistan. It is everywhere in the east, the Near East, Africa. It is thousands and thousands of people coming over, um, mostly uh, adult, single men. Uh, and the president could stop this. He has created it. He will not stop it. And perhaps next year, when he's running for re-election, he'll pretend to, to be tough. Um, but this is an, inc- an incredible historic crisis that was created and, and, and abided by one man, and that is Joe Biden, the president. Now, I think we are in a realignment moment because I think people want to stand with Israel and they want to close the border. And the president doesn't want to do either of those completely. He kind of waffles about. I'll talk with Senator Cotton later. I am dreadfully afraid that the Republicans are going to get lucid in the football again. I've been doing this show for 23 years. This will be the fourth time, I think, that a Republican immigration plan will be brought forward. The first one was McCain Graham. The second one was John Kyle Graham. The third one was Marco Rubio Graham. And now the fourth one is Jim Lankford. If they do not get the wall, it will not pass the House. And they have to get serious about the other reforms. And what I've seen thus far is going to just tick off every Republican in the country, Byron. Well, I've watched uh, the same um, immigration fights that you have. There was a big one in 2006, 2007. 
um, in which Bernie Sanders, who was still kind of a progressive and uh, union skeptical of uh, immigration, uh, actually killed that deal. And then 2013, when you had the gang of eight, uh, and that didn't happen. And I, I have become convinced that the way that Trump handled it, essentially using executive authority to create remain in Mexico and uh, limiting uh, border access and doing internal enforcement. I mean, I think executive authority at the moment is the way to do this. And Joe Biden is never going to do that. He's used his executive authority to not enforce the law. We we can't control him. The other thing I'm saying is it's crazy to have this sort of fight and, and conditioned on aid to Israel and Ukraine. Write a bill with aid to Israel, debate it and pass it, and then write a bill with aid to Ukraine and debate it and pass it. And this immigration problem, you're going to need a Republican president. Well, and Byron, we may end up doing that, but provide as long as immigration is part of the scrum, the Republicans cannot settle for a third of a loaf. They can't even settle for a quarter or a half of a loaf. They no. got to get the loaf. They, they got to actually deliver the wall, remain in Mexico, changes to asylum policy, limits on the president's executive ability to uh, uh, issue work permits. I mean, they've got to get what needs to be gotten in order to fix it. And by the way, it's not hard. The wall plus facilities to detain, plus immigration judges, plus border patrol enforcement people. It can be closed. Other countries do it. Trump had a, had a deal to, to get 25, I think it was $25 billion for the wall. That was in late 2017, I think. Correct. Um, and Paul Ryan and the Republicans didn't want to do it um, and kind of moved him toward tax cuts. Um, but he didn't, the fact is he didn't do it. And um, I, I, I don't think... I don't think with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, Republicans can get these things right now. So I think what you have is a standoff in which there's no big um, uh, uh, legislation passed. And by the way, I don't think you need comprehensive uh, uh, legislation on on immigration. That's what kills it every time. Every time. Every time we see the details. But will you at least agree with me? that the Republicans cannot try to pass something that doesn't have a wall in it. I think they will get crushed if they do. I've talked, I have talked with senators in their office off the record. I'm a moderate. I'm a squish on immigration. But if they don't build the wall, they are, they're going to get crushed by their own party. Well, they, they have to stand for building the wall, but the wall's not going to get built when Joe, as Joe Biden is the president. Then there shouldn't um, be a deal on immigration. And apparently immigration, apparently illegal crossings are not going to be even slowed as long as Joe Biden is president. I mean, the one thing you might be able to argue is that Biden has created a crisis on the border beyond what anybody could have imagined. And it's not the border. It is spread all throughout the United States. And do not blame Greg Abbott for this. You cannot have 8 to 10 million people come across the border in the state of Texas and Arizona, and they not spread all around the country. They're not all going to stay in Eagle Pass. So you could argue maybe that Joe Biden has created uh, an unprecedented crisis that might finally be the condition uh, for for Congress to actually take some action. But I believe with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, 
that action is not. I, I agree with that, but I want to make sure that, that I, I hear whether or not you agree with me. Republicans cannot settle for half a loaf. They'll get crushed if they do. Well, I think that you, you mean, oh, in other words, agree to a deal. Yes. It doesn't include these things. Yes. No, they can't. They cannot agree to a deal. That, I mean, when Biden included the border in his supplemental of October 20th, the money was going to be used to accommodate and to speed the flow of illegal crossers into the United States. That's what the money was going to be used for. So Republicans start adding these actual uh, border security measures. Uh, But you're right. They can't just agree to a really bad uh, border or immigration deal. It's got to to have a wall. Do you agree? I do think that it has to have a wall. Yes. And do you think it will? Well, they won't pass. That's it. And so there isn't going to be a deal. We're going to be this way until November. And it's going to be a referendum on the Biden crisis on the border and the Biden waffling on Israel and the Biden inflation. It's a disaster for Biden. Plus, he's infirm. He's old. Oh, boy, oh, boy. If they blow this one, I do not know how they can blow this one. Actually, I do know how they can blow this one. I'm just going to pray it doesn't happen. Byron York on X. Hard, hard to forget. B-Y-R-O-N-Y-O-R-K. Byron York on X and on Fox News and at the Washington Examiner. Thank you. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. David Drucker joins me from the Dispatch Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. The New York Times Shanna poll came out this morning. Joe Biden's numbers are awful, awful. And the poll finds wide disapproval of Biden on Gaza with little room to shift gears. I personally believe that he is suffering from the immigration issue and from not taking a side clearly on Israel, going back and forth, trying to have it both ways. What do you think these numbers are attributed to? Well, look, I'm going to have to dive into the poll, Hugh, but I really think everything just stems at the end of the day from a couple of things. One, his age, which he can't do anything about. Um, I think that that bleeds into every area of his leadership because I think there are voters who think that he's not up to the task um, on any of the priorities that they have. And so they're not necessarily judging him on his policies per se, conditions in the country per se. They're judging him on their what they think his ability to lead on those issues are. Concerns about his age make them think he can't lead regardless of what he does. I think number two, he's got a a Democratic Party um, that is in flux and divided over his leadership. And I think we need to remember that Joe Biden was never a dominating force in the Democratic Party. He always has found a way to 
put himself in the middle of his party, a centrist within the Democratic Party itself, not within politics itself. Support for him in 2020, I always thought it was a mile wide and an inch deep. But because there was such a desire to defeat Donald Trump, he was able to harness the party behind him. But it was never about him the way it was for Barack Obama or Bill Clinton. And so I think that all of these things are combining to cause him serious problems heading into next year. So, David, I want to sum up this way. The president is weak. He's weak physically. He's infirm. He's weak on the border. It's wide open. And he's weak on Israel because he's having it both ways. We're behind Israel, but they've got to be more surgical and less intensive. And they've got to be more careful. And they're not and they can't bomb indiscriminately. Weakness invites the contempt of most Americans. And I don't know how he changes it because you can't grow younger and you can't become less infirm. And I don't want the Republicans to punt away the issue. They have extraordinary leverage right now. They can get the wall done. Democrats might say no, but they're going to lose this election unless that border is under control. They're going to lose it big. Do you agree with me? Do, do I think that the Democrats are going to lose the election unless the border is under control? Or are yes. you talking about the Republicans? And Well, look, the border is an issue. And I think it's primarily an issue because uh, independents in particular are not pleased with the situation at the border. But again, this is where Biden faces a Sophie's choice, if you will, because if he does, if, if he has a, you know, we used, we used to call under Bill Clinton a sister soldier moment and says that, look, my party is in the wrong place on the border. I'm going to lead us into the right place. He could face a revolt from his left flank who absolutely doesn't want to, to meet Republicans in the middle on, on border policy, let alone go further than that. We've seen that in the border talks that it's combined with the military supplemental. In the United States Senate right now, there are uh, left-wing Democratic senators, not all Democrats, but those on the left flank, like uh, Senator Alex Padilla from California, who are criticizing Biden for dealing, for for signaling that he's willing to make any sort of deal on the border. So again, this is where he doesn't have the personal um, support within the party just for whatever he might do, just because it's him. And he's got a very restless Democratic base that is younger than him in a different place politically and policy-wise than him, and it makes him difficult to to do the things that he needs to do. I will say, though, that sometimes he doesn't move quick enough to do what's necessary. I've seen Biden over time ultimately make the the better political decision, uh, what some people might think is the better policy decision, but it can take him time to move along and during which uh-huh. he creates for himself political trouble. He shuffles. But if I'm Donald Trump or whomever the Republican nominee is, it looks like it's going to be the former president, but I'm in Switzerland. Things can happen. I don't know. Whoever it is needs to run on. We're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel. We are going to close the border, finish the wall, and we're going to rebuild our military and they will win. David, it's not really science. The American people are with they'll get the independent well, it, it, if they do that. Right. It'll be interesting to see if the former president, he will run on the border and he will talk about rebuilding the military and he will talk about uh, being uh, very supportive of Israel. It'll be interesting to see where the rest of the party is um, on that, particularly in Congress, where there's been a resistance among some Republicans to fund Israel without pay force um, and where there have been differences of opinion on military spending and how you project American power.
There may be differences of opinion, but I'm talking about the campaign. Uh, Mike Johnson, I had him on last week. He sounds like a pretty traditional Republican, just want to pay for us. And we'll get the aid to Israel and eventually to Ukraine. But all they have to do is say, we're going to stand with Israel. We, we hate Hamas. We're going to finish the wall and get tough on the border. And we're going to extend the tax cuts. we got to say that as well. And, and I think crime figures in. There's a big story in the Post today about D.C. crime, David. Did you read it? Um, I haven't read it yet, but I live in D.C., so I'm well aware of what's happening it's, in the city. It's, and it's, it's a, 1968 it's a all over again, and the Democrats are going to Chicago. It's going to be wild. Uh, David M. Drucker from The Dispatch. Follow him on X at David M. Drucker. Thank you, David. I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere, America. Welcome back, America. Dr. Michael Oren was Israel's ambassador to the United States for many years, former deputy minister. Good morning, Dr. Oren. Welcome. Great to have you. Thank you for joining me on short notice. I am alarmed by two polls. Poll number one, Harris. Most young Americans, a majority, believe that Israel's campaign in Gaza is genocidal and does not believe the state of Israel is legitimate. And only one in three Americans believe President Biden is handling the Israel-Gaza conflict correctly. What do you make of those two poll results? Hmm. Well, the two very different poll results. I, yes. I'd say the latter one is more politically motivated and, and is general criticism of the of the administration, uh, you know, about the President Biden's handling of many things. I, I know in my own family, which is a, a Biden the Wood Democratic family, there's a lot of criticism about the immigration issue. Um, and for the first time, they've actually confessed to me with tears that they're willing to vote Republican, which was quite a shock in my family, i got to tell you, Hugh. Wow. Uh, the first poll is actually, okay, I write really well. Um, I was shocked, um, shocked to find out there were Republicans at the Thanksgiving table in my house. Uh, but the first poll is actually is deeply, deeply troubling, and it's no joke. And um, that bespeaks a, a fundamental malaise, a fundamental uh, corruption. Um, in the American education system, a fundamental um, plague, if you will, a scourge uh, of new media and what it's done to this generation and, and muddled their minds. Uh, they have no idea where Gaza is. They have no idea where the Jordan River is. They have no idea of anything. They only know what they're getting on online uh, in the form of you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe billions, millions of bots and, uh, and absorbing this and then spewing it out again. And it, it's troubling. I'm sure that these same ideas that they have about Israel, they may have about the United States of America. I think they do. I listened to the commentary podcast yesterday, which I encourage you to do so, because they talked for an hour about this poll. And what do we do? What do we do? Yeah. This is an indictment of American education. Basically, there isn't any history. So I wanted to ask right. you, I, I have done 1948 to the present day many times, and I have now read Daniel Gordas's book three times, and I can do 1897 to 1947 pretty well. But what do you think? I think the key thing is people need to know the Bible is actually history. It's the, the diary of the Jewish people, says Daniel Gordas. The Romans destroy the temple in 70 AD. We can still see the temple. It's kind of hard to deny that the temple was there, and the diaspora occurs. Right. Jews never completely lead the land, but the Ottomans run it from 1500 to after World War One. Would you what do you think are the key facts that this audience ought to know about 1897 when Herzl pulls the Zionists together in Switzerland and 1948? You're up against you're in a post factual world. You are fighting feelings with facts. Yes. And, and what can I say? If, you have, if, if you've ever been in a relationship, you know that, that facts, when they come up against feelings, don't stand a chance, right? You know that. So, but uh, here, 
there's no laughing matter. But here, these are feelings. These aren't facts. And you can, you can, we have been, we've been a fact based public diplomacy country for years. We published little books called Myths and Facts, you know, and about Israel. And, uh, and we can say that, you know, the Palestinians hold the world's record for people who have turned down, uh, have been offered a two state solution, have turned it down most, most frequently with violence. We can say to her blue in the face that we Jews, we are the indigenous people. Uh, we were here before anybody. And that even the Arabic names of towns and countries around us, you can see the Hebrew behind them. We, we have a country just off the, the east of where I'm sitting called Jordan. You know what Jordan is? Yarden, that which flows down in Hebrew. It's, it's an Arab country with a Hebrew name. How did that happen? Okay, how did that happen? So, uh, you know, you can, you can say this again and again, but for this generation, facts are fungible. Those are your facts, not my facts. And my facts are what I believe. And what I believe has the exact same, you know, consistency, the same substance as an actual rock, right? And the rock has nothing over what I believe. How that's, about that's then? They are. And I, I do think we need to go back to fundamental factual education in schools over many years. But then how about fighting this feeling? Intersectionality, the hierarchy of the oppressed. I have listened very carefully to Israeli media. Israel is the most demographically diverse country in the world. We've got a new per, you know, remember George Santos, the disgraced Republican? You know who's running for his seat, Michael? Yeah. An Ethiopian yes, Jew an Republican. Ethiopian Jew, Israeli. Israeli, by the way. She's Israeli citizenship. IDF veteran. Yeah. I'm all for this. I've never met I, her. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Crazy. But do you, do you think <laughs> they understand that Israel is the most diverse country in the world? No, we're, we're a white settler country. Don't you get it? We're white settler. And uh, for the record, I did not grow up white. I grew up Jewish. We were not considered white when I grew up. But uh, we, we, I woke up one morning and found out that, that, I, was, that I was right. Um, yes, but you, you, the, the problems here are so, are so deep-seated, uh, Hugh. They're, they're so profound in the, Ameri- the young American educational experience. And, you know, this begins, this begins in the 1960s. It begins with the youth revolution. It begins with Foucault and then Derrida, who said there is no such thing as truth. It's all subjective. And the youth revolution tried to export itself beyond the university gates. It didn't succeed in the 1960s and 70s. So it went back into the universities. It closed the gates behind them and focused on generating generation after generation of people who thought like they did. And, you know, you can thank the tenure system for that because a tenure professor is always yes. going to choose someone who agrees with him or her, right? Not going to choose someone who disagrees. So the, the, the ideas perpetuate. And um, I, I was teaching at your alma mater some years ago, and I was talking to a, a, a PhD student in the art history department. And I said, are you going to get tenure? You're doing great work. He says, no, I'm not going to get tenure because I'm not a Marxist. Oh, okay, second, third history. try. Yesterday, in history. And, yesterday and, John Podhorod said, Jews must use their power. In America, they've got to cut off the yeah. money that they've been giving to universities. They've got to stop being nice people. They must use their power. I also read a story in the yeah. Times of Israel today that the whole Overton window in Israel has moved decidedly to the right. Now, that doesn't mean Netanyahu is going to win again. It doesn't mean anyone in particular, but that the country has become far more security minded and aggressive and tough in the last uh, 10 weeks. Do you agree with both of those assessments? American Jews must use their power. I, I Israel do. is fundamentally changed. Again, let me take the latter first. And that is, it's not that the, this, the, that we've shifted to the right. It's that we've woken up. And you, you know, there are people who say, you know, that a, that a rightist is a leftist who's been mugged by reality. Well, you can say we've been mugged by reality 
many, many times. And that is uh, people, again, this is my Israeli family. I've, I've referenced my American family, my Israeli family, which is pretty much center, even center left. When you say to them, two-state solution, they look at you and say, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Wait, you're going to put Hamas on the West Bank? That's what's going to happen. You, if you, you give a, a Palestinian state there, say under Mahmoud Abbas, who, by the way, is in the 19th year of his four-year term, because he won't stand for re-election because he knows right. that Hamas is going to win. Uh, no one will do that. No one will agree to that. Really nobody, maybe a, a percentage of the people in this country. So it's not a shifting right. It's, it's understanding that, you know, a two-state situation, it's just not going to wash today. And we've got our hands full as it is with Gaza, and we've got our hands full with Hezbollah. We don't need uh, – our longest front, by the way, is the Jordania-Samaria-West Bank front. That's just what we need there is Hamas. Uh, I see – you can't see that. I'm in my bomb shelter, but uh, there's a, a bulletproof window up to my left. Through that window, on a clear day like this, I see the Hebron Hills from Tel Aviv. I will be not in rocket range. I'll be in rifle range. Rifle range. Okay. That's for the first part. The second part is this. We have to thank Hamas. I know it's going to sound crazy. We've got to thank Hamas for, for one thing. Uh, first of all, reminding us that we are our people, that we are a nation. But it, Hamas solved two questions that were plaguing American Jews. The first question was, how do we define anti-Semitism? They couldn't reach a definition. Is anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism? No one could answer that question across the board. There was no consensus. And the second question is, how do we fight it? And among many American Jews before this war, the feeling was we fight anti-Semitism through education, through tolerance, by sitting down and explaining to the anti-Semites why anti-Semitism is bad, why the Holocaust happened, etc. Okay. Along comes this war, and it solves the two problems. Now we know, without any effect, unequivocally, we know that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Just ask yes. the people who are protesting in, for, for Hamas and calling to throw Jews into the gas chambers. They've solved the question. Two, we know you're not going to sit down and educate these people. You know you got to fight them, and that you can fight them. You can fight them by withholding uh, money from universities, by demanding the resignation of your university presidents. You can fight them legislatively. You can fight them by, by outlawing uh, supports for, 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 for genocide against the Jewish people in Israel. You can, you can outlaw them in any, many, many different ways you can fight. But that those two issues have been solved, and in a crazy, ironic, cruel way, we have to thank Hamas for that. Yeah, Michael, I've been calling it the GoPro pogrom because they put the GoPro cameras on and they filmed it, which was a strategic error on their part. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know that I can see it and sleep again. But people like Chris Cuomo, people who are not notorious for the support of Israel, have had their minds changed by this. And so the face of evil was so depraved yeah. and so shocking I think it's going to realign political opinion. And I believe the president's numbers are so low because he's trying to have it both ways. And you can't have it both ways. You can't be a little bit yeah. pro Hamas. You just can't. You know, I was on with Chris Cuomo last night at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, yes. and, uh, it was an easy. It, it was, oh, I don't sleep. But I, I, I had a, it was an interesting interview because it was right after he had seen this, this 47 minute film. And it, it really changed him uh, night and day. Really just changed his whole narrative. Yep. Um, and, you know, there's a big question whether we show, be showing that film more widely. I, I wouldn't recommend anybody see it. It is, oh, it is, it is transformative and not, in a positive, yeah. and not in a positive way. You will not see that. It will haunt you the rest of your life. Really, you, you'll never be able to forget it. It's literally an unforgettable movie. Um, but, yes, I've seen the, the we've had this uh, unending procession of, of senior American officials here in the last uh, week. Uh, yesterday, culminating with a visit of uh, Secretary of Defense Austin and and uh, uh, 
the uh, chief of staff and his uh, his um, you know entourage. Um, and I've now noticed that the United States is pull- the administration is pulling back from what the president said last week was that Israel was uh, bombing indiscriminately. And that followed on the heels of remarks by Secretary of State Blinken that uh, time, entirely too many Palestinians have been killed. And the message going out was that we were uh, not according with international law. And when we're saying we're doing that, we're basically liars. Uh, you know, basically, they're calling us murderers. And it created a situation where it was undermining the administration's own policy because those accusations then came back to haunt the administration in the form of U.N. Uh, Security Council resolutions calling for a ceasefire, which the administration was then going to have to turn around and veto. All right. So it wasn't making a lot of sense. And uh, it was creating resentment here, frankly. So we all deeply, deeply appreciative of the uh, of the president's support so far. Uh, it shouldn't be tainted in any way or qualified in any way, because we are fighting a war of national survival here. And not just that we're fighting a war for you. We're fighting a war for our civilization collectively. Michael, and, stand, uh, stand by for a second, Mr. Ambassador. I want yeah. to tape an off-air for the podcast that I'll play later in the show. Dr. Michael Oren, former ambassador of Israel to the United States, he ought to just be on a permanent uh, back-and-forth flight across the Atlantic. But not just talking to Jewish congregations in the United States. He and Habib have got to get out and talk to the Gentiles as well. Because this is the intellectual battle of our time. We have to win this battle. And the Biden administration and whatever Republican administration has to be clear on this. Israel is the West. They are us. And we are all under assault. Stay tuned. I am back now with Dr. Michael Oren. Michael, we have four minutes off air, which I'll put into the podcast and play later in the program. I think Joe Biden has to make a choice and Donald Trump has to make a choice. I'm going to be with Israel. I'm going to be critical of Israel. And this back and forth hectoring with Lloyd Austin, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, and and Kamala Harris in Dubai, it has to stop or they're going to get crushed in the election because America fundamentally understands Israel is great and good. What do you think of my political assessment? I don't know about the bidding crushed in the election. I think there are many other uh, issues to, uh, surrounding the Biden administration. I, I mentioned to you earlier in another conversation that my, my dyed-in-the-wood Democratic family is saying that they're considering to vote Republican in this election. And their major issue is not Israel. Their major issue is, is immigration. Yep. And what it's done to the healthcare system in the United States. It's amazing. They all work in healthcare and they've seen the, the healthcare system be totally un- undermined by, by, by immigration policies. Um, so there, there are many other issues. I think what's at stake here is not an election. You, at stake is the, the survival, a future, the destiny of our civilization. And, uh, the stakes are much, much higher than one presidential election. Um, and that, uh, that if Hamas wins, not only will Europe's security be totally undermined and ultimately American security will be undermined, but the, the minds of our children will be undermined. And we've seen now in this poll that shows over half of Generation Z thinks that Israel shouldn't exist, that Hamas is a good thing. Okay. That will win. That will win. I, I spent uh, an evening in the army this week. I haven't been in the army in a while and I was, went down to visit a recon unit outside of Gaza. And, uh, you know, we love the myth of Cincinnatus, don't we? The, the, the Roman general or, uh, who wants, just wants to farm. And every time he wants to farm, someone comes along and says, you got to defend the Republic. All right. It, it, that, that picture of, of Cincinnatus is blazoned on the, on the ceiling of the House Appropriations Committee. Good piece of trivia for you. And, uh, it's an American myth, but it's also an Israeli reality. And what I saw was uh, 600 soldiers. Uh, who have come from high tech, who have come from families, who have come from uh, small businesses, 
uh, all there together with their guns, uh, eating dinner, going out in their in their Hammer V Humvee jeeps, going out to defend the state of Israel, and perhaps not coming home. We're losing three, four, five soldiers a day. Um, and it, I got to tell you, it, it was an extraordinary sight. And I was profoundly aware, looking at this, profoundly aware that what these soldiers are doing are not just defending the state of Israel. They're defending us, us and the greatest possible definition of us. Defending you, Hugh. Defending the people who work with you. Defending your families. And I was, I was overwhelmed with, uh, with pride, with emotion and appreciation, really gratitude for everything they're doing. They've been in the army. They've been fighting for 60 days. 60 days is a long time to be in combat. Yeah, um, and, and Dr. Orr, we'll talk again and, tomorrow, I hope, because I want to get deeper into the hectoring going on of America. But that gratitude is felt on the United States for the IDF as well. At least people who understand how the world works. It's China, Russia, and Iran, and Iran's proxies against yeah. the rest of us, and they're playing to win, and IDF is on the front edge of that battle. And I appreciate your taking time with me. You must be exhausted. You do more media than anyone I know. But you and yeah. Habib Redigur, you got to get out there, man. you got to yeah. talk to the Gentiles next time you're back in the United States because this argument has got to be won across the entire political spectrum and every demographic. Right. Dr. Michael Oren on X. Follow him at Dr. Michael Oren on X. And follow me to the next segment. Thank you, Dr. Oren. Thank you. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Bethany Mandel joins me every week to give me the perspective of a young mother in America. Good morning, Bethany. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I talk, you know, I listen to your husband every day on the commentary podcast. It's kind of funny. I listen to him every day and I talk with you once a week. And they spoke this week about fear in Jewish America that is unique to their experience, that it's actually happening here. Do you feel that fear? Yeah, absolutely. My daughter used to walk to a synagogue half a mile away um, every single Saturday, and we stopped letting her on October 7th. We knew what was happening on October 7th. And we, we wouldn't let her go. Um, at, our, at our former synagogue in Georgetown yesterday, um, they dealt with two things simultaneously and were unrelated. Someone called in a bomb threat. Um, which they knew right on the face was not legitimate. But at the same time, someone drove a, yen, a rented U-Haul truck parked outside the barrier and tried to get into the synagogue. And when he couldn't get in because the doors were locked because of security fears, uh, he started spraying people who were walking outside with a substance screaming, gas the Jews. That's, that's where we went to synagogue when we first got married. And that's, that's what happened yesterday. Just John, Sunday. John Podhorz told me about the spraying. He didn't tell me about the car, which makes that uh, yeah. a much more significant act of potentially deadly violence. I don't know what he sprayed. Yeah. So, Bethany, I, I posed the question to Daniel Gordas and to Haviv Redigur yesterday. The No one expected Germany to go over the edge into Holocaust land. It took 30 years for them to get there. Uh, do you think America has it in it that kind of deadly anti-Semitic poison? Um, not on a governmental, not on a societal level. Um, but yesterday evening, uh, the mother of a young woman named Nama Levy, she's 19 years old, and she's unfortunately synonymous. Her image is synonymous with the accusations of sexual violence that Hamas is perpetrating 
currently. Um, she's a hostage. She's 19 years old. And her mother was speaking, Ayala, was speaking in New York City to a group of people. And it became so violent outside of protesters who were pro-Hamas protesters that they had to escort all of the attendees under police protection into white NYPD vans and bring them off of the premises because they were in so much danger. So like, do I think that Auschwitz will be you know, built outside of Albany, New York? No. Do I think that Jews are in serious mortal danger? Absolutely. Pogroms are not familiar to the American audience generally, but they were fairly common in Russia and then Europe throughout the 19th century. And pogroms meaning random violence against Jewish communities that result in the death of dozens and sometimes scores of Jews and in horrific uh, sexual violence and beatings and, and violence towards children. Do you think we have to worry about pogroms in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think last night was an attempted pogrom, and the only thing that stopped these protesters was the NYPD. Now, that's so disturbing and stunning that we have to get our police departments to realize that assault is a crime. If you put people in imminent fear of an unpermitted touching, it's a crime. They can be arrested. It's not protected speech. But I haven't seen anybody arrested. Have you, Bethany? I mean, I'm not sure what happened last night, but generally, I mean, how long did it take the murderer of the of the man in Los Angeles? He he murdered him with a megaphone. It, we knew who he was from the moment he hit him. And yet it took a week for that arrest to happen. Um, it, it's I mean, and he killed him. He, he died that day. Um, so it's it's a it's a pretty terrifying situation where, you know, it's great that the NYPD stepped in and provided that police protection and, and put all of these attendees in white police vans. But the imagery of Jewish women having to be put into white police vans and and carted off for their safety is a terrifying visualization, but also a terrifying reality. Yeah, Bethany, I, I know Supreme Court justices listen to this show. They've told me. And they know that there's something called a heckler's veto. That's not constitutional. Um, uh, uh, Crowds cannot shout down speakers from an opposing opposing point of view. It is not acceptable that you escort speakers out in vans. What you do is you arrest the menacing people. And we have to persuade the police to arrest people who are menacing other people. It's not free speech. It's assault. Uh, and uh, and DC's yeah. become ungovernable. I just don't know. Did anyone get arrested other than the driver? Did he actually get arrested in DC? I I, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I I don't think so. I mean, I'm curious to see if there are arrests made on the unrelated bomb threats that happened across the country. There were 200 bomb threats called in synagogues coast to coast on Sunday. And swattings as well. Have there been any arrests or is there an investigation? See, I don't the, know. The trouble is the FBI is investigating Latin mass attending Catholics. So in Richmond. Yep. So they haven't got time for the bomb threats against Jews. You know, I, I yep. believe there's a fundamental realignment going to happen in this election, Bethany, because this is not OK. And I don't think people believe it's OK. 
No, I mean, it's it's terrifying. I mean, the American Jewish community is, and the Israeli Jewish community as well, I think that they have to realize that there, there is no peace right yeah, now. John, John Podhort said on the commentary, he closed it yesterday, Jews have to start to use their power, and he quoted Ruth Weiss. He's right. They have to cut off their money, and they have to assert their voice, and I think they have to realign to the party that takes policing seriously. Bethany Mandel, follow her on X at Bethany Shondark. Thank you, Bethany. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.